Real Men Feel with Andy Grant encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been told, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. If you would like a one-on-one conversation to help you get clear on what you want in life and what's in your way of getting there, visit theandygrant.com slash talk and book a no-obligation, no-cost appointment. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host Andy Grant. You know I have had the uh, you know the pleasure and discomfort of hosting and being a guest this summer on a number of podcasts dealing with racism. And you know I find that this is a topic that we can't talk about enough. You know I, I find in my experience that it discussions, not not arguments, not social media comments, not memes discussions are the best way to bring about lasting change. And, you know, perhaps my guest today will open all of us up to new ways beyond that. Um, so, so let's get to it. My guest today is Chris Miller. He is a white male operations improvement consultant with 30 years of experience in leadership and change management in both for-profit and not-for-profit organizations. Chris compassionately supports organizations in reducing the gap between their stated desire for justice, equity, and inclusion, and operational reality. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks a lot, Andy. I'm I'm really psyched Glad that to be here. Yeah, I'm psyched. We uh we met, and I just found out like what you what you did, and I was immediately in, intrigued. Um, so let let's start with my opening statement. Like, do, does talking about race help anything? Yeah, I mean, my my experience is that's true. I think that um, racism basically gets maintained first by physical segregation. You know, there's a lot of racial segregation that makes it very difficult, especially for white people to cross over into people of color communities, whereas racism makes it be that people of color are in the midst of white people for work and uh, play and those kinds of things. And so... um, it's actually quite difficult to make even just physical contact with some regularity. It takes um, planfulness, especially on the part of white people. So that's one form of contact. Mm. If you get over that, then the second form of avoidance of contact is I find that most of us white people in with good intention of trying not to appear racist or do racist things we avoid talking about race. We avoid talking about our own race. We avoid talking about race with people of color. And our protective stance is we don't see color. And so why talk about it? White people who notice color are people who wear sheets and are in the KKK. Hmm. And those of us that don't want to be associated with that think that the better solution is to not notice and to not talk. So it's a better solution than wearing a cape. And, uh, <laughs> Good. So, <laughs> and, and yet, there's still there's still some real limitations to what's possible by not making content. So, two white males talking about racism is not somehow on the wrong track immediately. No, I, I mean it's a fair question. It's a it's a really fair question. Um, I think for me, it's really important for us as white men to understand what is our role 
in this and that we too have a racial identity, that it's not just people of color who have racial identities, that actually we as white people and we as white men both have a gender identity and a racial identity that often results in us making race-based and gender-based decisions, most time outside of our awareness, that we think are, quote, just the most professional or the best leadership option or the best operational choice when there actually is um, an element um, to varying degrees about what our racial identity is. Hmm. So what is the role for white men in, hmm, in alleviating racism? Well, I think one of, the, one of the greatest forms my work has taken, I started my consulting firm in 2004 and I would say I've really made a specialty in working with white male executives um, and inviting us to think about both what is the cost to us of racism and how might we be uniquely positioned because of the privileges that we get as white people and as men to interrupt and uh, take ownership for creating different organizational cultures, different outcomes, different policies, um, which isn't usual. You know, I mean, I, I think one of the costs of racism and sexism to white men is that rightfully so, women and people of color don't want to hear our, the costs of racism or our sadness or our losses around it, and, nor do I think they should carry that. And so I think there is a unique role and responsibility for us white men to compassionately support each other for the things that we caught because of racism and sexism and how to invite us to think and do differently in ways that we can use. We're getting the privilege, whether we want it or not, by talking about it with each other and making some choices about it. We actually can do something actively to interrupt racism. When I first spoke to you, you, you mentioned that we need to be compassionate to white people because of what they caught. And you just say again, what we caught. So I've never heard it, that, that phrase in, in this realm before. So could, could you expand a bit on that? Sure. Um, you know, we, we don't come out as children racist, right? And so we learn. We learn from a very early age, most times outside of our awareness, through images, through conversations, through schooling, through books, through who my family hangs out with where we vacation, who are our doctors, dentists, that we learn a lot of lessons about who white people are and who people of color are. And so when I say caught, we're catching that. I mean, you know, thousands and thousands of images every day throughout our life that has us form opinions about a racial hierarchy and what are benefits and what are our discounts. And so in some ways it isn't our fault because it's what we've been groomed into. And so in that way, I like to use the word compassionate because I don't think that very many of us white people actively seek to, to do racist things. You know, I think most of us actually care about trying to be good human beings that no matter who you are, I'm going to be kind and responsible to you. Unfortunately, the things that we caught about racism, oftentimes outside of our awareness, have us not show up in the way that we might want. 
And so how do we kind of get to undo the script kindly? Uh, I, I don't think shame culture, I mean, I, I've really come to shame and cancel culture, I think ultimately really hurts people of color. That when us white people get competitive with each other and cancel each other out, it's people of color who pay the price for that. And so I have found that the more I can see myself in you, your mistakes in me and my mistakes in you, and I just did it yesterday and I'm going to do it tomorrow, that then I can be compassionate and we can support each other so that then we're not going to people of color to absolve us or to make us be the white, the good white guy. Um, and that we can really kind of take care of ourselves and each other and do our part of changing this that doesn't put the burden on people of color to either initiate the conversation or make us feel better when inevitably we make a mistake. What got you first interested in, in social justice and, and issues of race? Did this start at a young age or do you have some you know, specific experience that put you on this path or how was that? Yeah, probably if I'm truthful, it probably started being raised Catholic uh, with a very strong sense of social justice, Jesuit, um, you know, liberation theology uh, of the poor in Central and South America, um, you know, very much was groomed into that as a very important part of my upbringing, which led me to do social work as an undergrad, actually. And I took a job in my freshman year of college where it was definitely, I was this kind of doughy-eyed, kumbaya, don't notice race social worker who went to work, what ended up for four years in a black community center uh, in Lafayette, Indiana, which was predominantly white. And then there was this black neighborhood in the enclave that there was a community center. And I worked there for four years. And... I came out a different person in terms of thinking about the, the significance of race and um, that my race blind position was not really tenable anymore. Um, so, you know, I kind of did social work for some time um, and I wanted to leave Indiana. And so I actually went and got my MBA and kind of did a 360. I worked for a big six accounting firm, did a lot of consulting, you know, staying in corporate condos and, you know, spending more on food for a day for my travel than my other clients would have for food stamps for a month, which was really quite complicated for me. And how I got kind of reconnected to this work is that my kids who are now 28 and 26, uh, my uh, wife and I at the time put them in a, the Cambridge Friends School, which had an explicit anti-racism, anti-homophobic um, statement and position. And I decided that if my, I was going to ask my children to be engaged in that work, that I wanted to take some responsibility for re-engaging in that work. So it turns out that they had a group uh, for white parents called Examining Our Own Racism that was led by uh, a white woman and a white man who were associated with an organization called Visions that's in Roxbury. Um, founded by two black women from North Carolina. And it, that just turned me on to this whole kind of rethinking about race. I 
spent a lot of time getting trained by visions in their tools and methodologies um, and applied it at my work in very significant ways, um, having people of color on my staff. And, uh, you know, from that, you know, doing it as practically as an executive, then in 2004, I started my own consulting company. And that's what I've been doing. I've been talking to organizations about how predominantly white organizations about how we do or mostly don't effectively deal with race in our organizations. Have you ever found yourself dismissed or get backlash as, as a white male speaking about diversity? Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the cost of racism and sexism to me that when I show up in this presentation, there's a whole narrative, right, that comes along with me. That, you know, I hopefully over time make some shifts in what that narrative is by how people experience me. And yet, sure, the cost of racism and sexism to me is that on the one hand, where I get tremendous benefits by being a white man going in and doing this work, there are certain ways that I have to, to both think and feel uh, in ways that people of color and other white people can feel that I'm in this, that this matters to me, that I'm not doing it to take care of you people, that it really is about all of us. I'm not interested in shaming myself. I'm not interested in shaming any people of color or white people that are doing the work. And that over time, then people are like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's that white Chris Miller dude. <laughs> so it's almost as if there's there's like a burden of proof that that comes sure. with yeah, this. It's a good yeah. way. It's a good way to it's a good way to put it. It's okay. a good way to put it. Hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, it's a trickier it's a trickier dance actually in some ways with the white people, um, because I think that sadly, I think people of color don't experience very many of us white men being willing to talk so frequently over so many years explicitly about race mm. and especially about what's the responsibility of white people. So my experience in most of the organizations I go into, there's some version from the people of color of hallelujah, thank you. There's somebody other than us as the people of color who have to take responsibility for educating and supporting white people. So a lot of times the burden of proof is actually more quickly given by people of color. It's the white people who, you know, unfortunately, I think that we we get invited into competition. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a newer book out called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, which I actually haven't read. And yet I want to give props and shout outs to that in that I would say that probably the thing that I incorporate the most in my work that helps with that burden of proof is that I have spent a lot of time with my own white fragility and understand what that feels like, what that sounds like in my head, what it feels like in my heart, um, how it influences my courage, my scare, my risk, that I feel like I've learned how to incorporate that in the way that I invite other white people into the conversation. So that part of the burden of proof is, am I not going to shame you? Am I not going to say, oh, well, back when I was as regressed as you were, 
you know, I used to think like that. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, no, you no, know no. I mean? Oh, poor little-minded you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> when you get as when you get as woke as I am, then we'll be good. And you know, so I really work really hard to have the examples that I give of my mess ups of yesterday, you know, or the day before. Because the truth is, I think most of us white people protect ourselves from the cost of racism to us of being uncomfortable talking about races and making a mistake is we just don't talk about it. Mm. Whereas so, what happens for those of us that choose to give up that survival mechanism, man, we make a lot of mess ups. <laughs> the more contact you have, the more likely it is that you're going to say or do something that just didn't work. So is understanding you haven't read the book. My wife has read the book. It's in my house, but I haven't read it yet, but she, she loved it. So understanding neither of us have read the book, but you've had your own experience of, of white fragility. So could, could you explain it a, a little bit more? Is, is it, is it defensiveness? Is it something else? Yeah, it, it's a good question. You know, I think, I think it often gets presented as some version of anger, which is defensiveness. And my experience has been that if you or if I don't take the bait that it's anger and if I can actually really slow the conversation down and, you know, compassionately be in conversation with you, more often than not, I find that scared is a very prevalent affect that, that we're just afraid. We don't have experience. We really want to do the right thing care about the relationships more often than not they're people that we're friends with or people that we work with and you know we're afraid that we're going to hurt a person that matters to us and so fear i think um often you know drives us in some ways so we're looking for protection and then the other thing which i think takes a little longer to move toward is actually to really let in the profound sadness of the history of this country and what is still happening today and to like really let that penetrate my skin and my heart and how me and my people have responsibility for that still today in 2020, even in Massachusetts. Um, sometimes that's more sadness than I can bear. You know, I often close my eyes as it's a weird kind of body protection for not, you know, taking in the sadness. So I think usually it starts as an anger defensiveness, but then I think if we peel it back a little, it's, it's scared. And then when people have enough contact getting past their scared and make contact, I think it, there's a, there's a profound sadness of letting go of the America that we thought we were in. Yeah. That's uh boy. When it, I think the I think it was back in May, even before George Floyd, I did a, a panel show. I had three prior African American guests come on, and we just talked about being black in America, and and I was shocked how many black Americans messaged me saying thanks, thanks, thanks. I'm like, oh, it was have a conversation, but like you're saying, like, oh, you like you you crossed over, you're helping, you're you know, yeah. you're 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 a good white person, whatever it might be. And I was I was yeah. stunned by that, and stunned by so much of what was shared in the show. And in my experience with, with, with whites that, you know, don't want to see, don't, you know, say, Oh, I didn't own slaves. Oh, that was hundreds of years ago. Right. It's, mm -hmm. and, and I never thought of it, but like, yeah, they don't want to feel that sadness. They don't want to yeah. acknowledge that pain. 
So that that's a really interesting take that I had not uh, considered. And so we switch to anger, right? Sadness invites us into grieve and get support, move people toward us, move toward ourselves. Anger is really good then at a distancing of my own heart and it's a distancing of other people, yeah. you know? So it's a, it's a pretty intact survival mechanism that, yeah. you know, has true, tremendous cost to us as white people for being angry and it has tremendous cost to people of color because we are, we're hard, <laughs> you know, we get hardened and we, we come with a shell and it hurts our relationship with other white people too. So let's talk a bit more about that. Like what, what are the costs? What's the effect of racism on, on white people? I think, I think where my answer goes first is the possibilities of our intimate relationships across race that, you know, I was just, I think I had just read a, a little snippet in the New York times that less than 4% of white people have a close enough black friend to be in their wedding party. Hmm. So we live, you know, we live a certain life as a result of that. Right. And so there's a real cost to, what are the kind of intimate relationships that I can have and who do I have them with and how do they enrich my life? And I know for me, having friends of different races has had me live a really different life than most white people has had my two sons live a really different life because of the contact that we've had. Um, so, I, you know, I think of it very smallly you know, in that way. Um, I, I think the cost of racism too is, you know, we're at work and we're in mixed race settings and we're trying to do something as a team and the elephant, there's all these different elephants that come up in the room and people feel them. They have consequences for the relationship. They have consequences for the work product that gets done. And, you know, there isn't a way to have both all sides of that heal, you know, by not talking about it. Um, you know, I was just talking, I was talking to a client yesterday and he was telling me about, he had these two black uh, male uh, maintenance guys who had gone back to this one program four times because they felt like they couldn't say no to the white people who had, who had in some way or another said that the job wasn't to their liking and that the original guy hadn't yet signed off on it. And my, the white CEO was like, that's terrible. I mean, he both felt terrible that though he, he said, stop, you don't have to go back that many times. And they're like, you don't understand. Like, I don't have a choice not to say no. And so, you know, just from an organizational running place you know the cost of racism to him was that his purse his men of color maintenance guys had to keep driving out to a site because they couldn't they didn't feel like they could say no to the white people and not be in some kind of trouble is is it is it things like that 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 a ceo spots and just just bothers him personally as a as a as a human 
that has a company reach out to you or you know is there a is there a common issue that that or or event that leads to people reaching out to you in this particular case actually i i've worked with this client for 10 years and so um there's been really profound really profound changes in that organization over the 10 years and certainly for me supporting an organization over 10 years definitely invites me to keep sharpening my skills about how do I support an organization in that journey so intimately for so long. So that's my preferred way of working. I mean, I, it's rare for me to take on a client engagement. That's not going to be at least three years. Wow. So you, so yeah. you're not the weekend seminar guy. You, you no. are really part of a company. <laughs> yeah. I'm not your guy. If you just want to come in and check the box with a half day training or a whole day training and you're good. You, you know, that that's the extent. A cultural level change in organizations is minimally a three to five year process. And so if you want to change how your organization culturally feels around race, sadly, and I know most of us white people, both from the way that we want to be efficient as well as we can't stand that that's, happening we want to fix it and like give me the guidebook and give me the playbook and tell me the 10 things that i don't not to do and the 12 to do and we'll be good my experience is it doesn't work like that and it takes sustained 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 contact and peeling of an onion over a long period of time that um you know comes and uh one of the things i think that's a little different in my work too which was connected to the session I had yesterday was I very specifically don't encourage my clients to set metrics, hmm. nor do I usually tell them to start with a diversity committee. Um, so, which are not usual things like, well, what, how do you know if it's working, if it's not measured and, the DEI people are going to own, own the initiative. And, you know, my thing with, with clients is if you do the right process, the metrics are going to come. And whatever metric you decide right now is going to bake, be baked in with where your racial identity is as an organization. So you're kind of behind <laughs> to do it. And also, usually diversity and inclusion if there's unhealed racism or sexism in the organization and a DEI committee tries to work, all of those things are going to undermine their work. In addition to, they don't usually have the authority they need to drive an initiative. So usually I, in, I don't want to say insist, I strongly encourage uh, my clients to have the CEO or the chief operating officer own the initiative with the expectation that a racial lens is going to be applied to all operations. Don't do metrics and you'll see over time. So actually yesterday in our conversation, uh, the HR person said, you know, I realized it was like our 10 year anniversary of doing this work. I was compiling this EEOC report and sure enough, their mid-level, uh, managers of color went from 5% to 15%. And all of the managers 
were all internal promotions. You know, so they had a threefold increase in middle and senior management, and it was all internally groomed. And it, it wasn't a measure that we set out, right? And yet, by doing the right thing over a long period of time, oh, of course, <laughs> you know, so. Uh, right. So, so it's not about instituting quota systems and having, you know, it's not about math. It's about a true openness, true inclusion, letting the best people rise up. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, they have those places, those, those strategies. And as hard as recruitment is for people to get people of color, particularly at larger, uh, at higher levels in organizations, I would venture to say that the retention is much more difficult. And so as difficult as retaining uh, of, of, of hiring somebody, recruiting somebody, that's hard for a lot of white organizations. So it requires kind of fishing in other waters. And yet I know many, many white organizations who year after year might have 20% people of color. And that number is pretty consistent, sometimes goes to 25, but probably 80% of those are different people every year. Because in my opinion, that speaks to the culture. How well does the person feel like once they get there, you know, a lot of organizations say, we want one of you because you're black or we want one of you because you're a lesbian. And then you come into the organization and we work really hard to make you white <laughs> and we work really hard to make you straight without thinking about it, right? We're not thinking that that's what we're doing. And so how do we then, once we get somebody like that, that we wanted, make a culture that actually allows them to be that, where they can full up sell show up with their full selves and feel like it's a place where they want to stay. So I've met plenty of hmm, people that are so beaten down for lack of a better term that, that believe that this bias, this racial bias is so, so deep, so unconscious, so embedded, so systemic that we'll never eliminate it. But, but sounds like you're having success. You're eliminating it from organizations, from the cultures of companies so do you, how pessimistic or optimistic are you about society as a whole? That's a good question. I work every day on solving an unsolvable problem. Racism is never going to be solved in my lifetime, nor my children's lifetime. So how do I make peace with and still stay engaged with and be curious and excited and committed to making the amount of change that I can make over time and not get defeated by, I'm never going to solve the problem. So that's one thing is to resign to a certain level of powerlessness <laughs> and still remain powerful and committed. Um, I forget the second part. So that was the first part of your question about it's unsolvable. Um, well, so you're, you're, it sounds like to me, you're, you know, you have success. You're, you're able to solve it in, in the culture of a corporation, or is it not even, is it not permanently solved there either? Is it just, is this about improving as opposed to solving? I think it's improving because actually the more you do this work, the more you uncover you know, there's just more and more that gets revealed to you. And so, um, 
there's never an end to it. And yet for me, you know, still doing this, whatever, 25 years in, I still get excited by what gets uncovered. Hmm. Um, I mean, sure, I, there's a lot of predictability. I've seen a lot of movies before when white people think it's something unique. You know, yeah, there's patterns, which on the one hand are really tragic to me about how familiar, familiar the patterns are across organizations which is really tragic, which to me speaks to the systemic nature of racism that isn't about individuals or an organization. And at the same time, because I have a set of tools that I've been working for a long time, I, I do have a strategy and tools to help organizations advance the dial so that I can still feel um, optimistic and in control <laughs> to a certain degree. So are, are the tools that you found do they do they benefit can they benefit individuals or is it really for corporate structure is it is it more in that sense yeah good question it's a little both um you know the work that i've been trained to do works if i'm doing it well in the organization and doing it well works on four levels one is the personal level so how do people think and feel you know, it's our values. I don't see color. The best way to not be racist is to not talk about race. Um, we're all God's children. You know, sort of those kinds of things are our personal beliefs. The next level is interpersonal. So how do we behave with people based on our personal beliefs? So if I, my personal belief is I don't see color, I'm never going to refer to myself as a white person. I'm not going to call a, 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 per, a black person black, right? And so it then looks at how do we treat each other interpersonally. The third level is institutional, which is what are the policies and practices that we make that are usually based on our personal beliefs that have behavioral manifestations that get codified in policies and procedures. And then the fourth level is cultural, which kind of the vernacular for that is, what does an organization see as what's good, right, and beautiful? And so it's always working at those four levels and you know simultaneously to think about that, and they're usually iterative, right? They each affect each other. Um, and cultural level change is the hardest. It's easy to, talk to one person about their behavior. It's easy to write a policy. It's very difficult to have it be that that policy just let people do it because it lives, because it's culturally relevant. It's what everybody in the organization sees as good, right, and beautiful. Hmm. Um, in fact, this client yesterday, we were looking at their evolution. <sighs> and it's hard to even recount. Um, you know, very early on in the journey, they were, and I think there was some compliance external, you know, regulatory stuff to it that they had to attest to. And in the beginning, they would make particularly people of color attest to who they didn't know in the organization. Because from where they were coming, that that would make for bad boundaries. And if there were kids in the program that were their nieces or that their cousin worked, that it just wasn't going to work. And it was mostly people of color who were being asked to sign that. 
fast forward 10 years, all 90% of their referrals for employees come from other people of color that work there. Um, they now, somebody's cousin has an employee temp agency who's a black guy who now is their temp agency. And somebody else then says, oh, my cousin does. Right. And so like the culture then was a very white, you know, boundary, quote, professional, you know, non-community based, non-relationship based. And as they came to understand that, wow, that's really messed up. <laughs> like that's, that doesn't work. I mean, it's, it's messed up. It, it doesn't respect that people can both be in communities of color and also work <laughs> and do their job and that those things aren't either or. And so uh, just watching just kind of like that evolution about the culture that makes for a very different way of like employing people and recruiting people. Have you had experience of, of some organizations you go into when you're working for years that, that some employees are, they have such strong racist beliefs, either consciously or unconsciously, that they just can't stay, that people leave because they, they can't align with the new culture? Sadly, my experience has been that it's mostly white women that get fired, that the baked in sexism that's already alive in the organization for a long time, that has very narrow ways that women are allowed to behave, and the way that women's behavior collects a lot more energy, negative energy, than men's behavior, uh, even as my experiences, there are many, many many men who do very egregious behaviors in very high places that have both sexist and racist things. There's a way that us white men learn to talk, learn to schmooze, benefit from, you know, racism and sexism that unfortunately I found that way the disproportionate number of people who have been told you got to go because you're not with it are white women. Hmm. Hmm. So you're saying that that's the case before um, the kind of culture change or even, I guess I'm trying, I'm not maybe missing something. Are you saying that it's primarily white women in organizations that, that are, are behaving racist or they're the ones that are getting blamed? They're the ones that are getting blamed. Okay. I think okay. the, I think the ways in which women's behavior acceptable behavior is already constrained and more often seen as problematic, like the latitude and range uh, of affect um, for women is so much smaller than what us men get granted. So then you, and then often they're middle or lower managers that are much more likely than senior men to have people of color directly working for them. So as the organization gets, quote, woke around this, um, you know, white people get competitive with each other and who isn't coming along. And I'm not saying at all that the women are doing worse things. In fact, I think most men still get skates on so many things. And it's been my experience that those are the casualties usually at least in the sort of beginning stages, you know, say the first 
year, two years. It's white women um, who are the casualties mm. who say are seen as they're not getting with it. So it's almost the, uh, the allowable lane for them to operate in is narrow already. Yeah. So people with more privilege and authority and maybe some of it's, we've got to look like we're changing. So who has to go? Is that sometimes the scenario? Yeah. I mean, I think, I, yeah, I mean, I think that then, you know, in the family therapy language, it's called the identified patient. You know, it's it, when a family's messed up, it's a family system. Yet usually when somebody goes in, Oh, it's the kid or it's the wife or, you know, and so, you know, in these systems, the systems are, you know, a mess and they're racist and they're sexist. And oftentimes the identified patient ends up being a white woman. Hmm. Hmm. I've seen many people of color say that, that these days are maybe it's probably true always, but especially now that not being racist isn't enough and you have to be anti-racist. So could you give me your take on, on what being anti-racist means? Yeah, well, your question reminded me of the second half of the answer about did I feel pessimistic okay. or optimistic, right? And so this question, you know, make, brings me to that, which I want to be optimistic. I, I do. And certainly there's a lot more white people, at least in this moment, speaking out. My experience has been that it's usually kind of short-lived and that many times there's a, for lack of a better word, a performance aspect to it. And Unpacking your white privilege and understanding how you contribute and how embedded and myriad and insidious and in every place racism exists takes a lot of really sustained practice to both understand and see it in the world and also understand and see it in you and the people that you're connected to. So in that way, I don't find very many white people <laughs> who are interested. I mean, white privilege makes it be that we can go on to the next thing. Mm. Um, you know, I, I often think of my whiteness as my breath. I think about my breath when I'm doing guided breathing exercises. When I finish that, I'm breathing and I'm not aware. And so I think about that as the way that a lot of white people, you know, sadly engage in this race work is that when, you know, there's some event or something, we're conscious. And then the tide of segregation, the tide of privilege sweeps us back to not paying attention to it uh, with the kind of intentionality and constancy that I think it takes to actually move the dial. So you know, I'm an old cat. I've been at it for a while. Uh, uh, this podcast is a new thing for me. So I'm, I'm trying to remain hopeful that the 20s and 30 year olds that are, you know, demonstrating in this will have some longevity to them.
it hasn't it hasn't been my experience of most people most white people over the last 20 30 years of the work that i've done there's very few of us so we have uh white people our our history is having kind of short intense bursts of being actively anti-racist and then we remember that oh we don't really have to do all this work yeah which is why I think, you know, the, I think it's really important for us white people to really understand what's in it for us. How is our liberation and our humanity intimately connected to the liberation of people of color? Because you can't do this work for those people. It's too hard. It's not sustainable. And I think very few of us white people spend enough time with ourselves or with this topic to really understand the effects of dehumanization on us as white people um, and the boxes that we put ourselves in and other people in that, you know, we just don't spend enough time, I think, understanding that our liberation is tied directly and that then I'm in. I'm in. All right. So... How does dehumanization of, of any other affect probably the, the white people doing it? You have to ignore a lot of really awful things. You have to pretend you don't see. You have to pretend that it doesn't matter to you, that you have no friends of color in your life. You don't celebrate quinceañeras as you celebrate Kwanzaa, as you celebrate Christmas, as you have conversations with people from 10 different countries that bring both U.S. and other country conversations about how that really inspires me and makes me think and tickles my brain and, and warms my heart. You know, there's just so many ways that we just don't engage in relationships. Um, and always having to be right as white people and having to be perfect and be in charge. And, you know, <laughs> we're not meant to be like that all the time. So is it in the sense, is it us dehumanizing anyone else is dehumanizing us as well. We're, we're creating a duller life for us, right? We're, yeah. yeah, we're, yeah. So the more racially or gender or religious or any, any, any possible diversity, anytime you ignore some of that and you choose to be less diverse, you're, yeah, you have a, a less opportunities. You're seeing, you're denying yourself some of the, the beauty and some of the new experiences and possibilities that the, that the world can offer you. Yeah, and I'm much more likely to think badly of somebody's difference. I'm not going to just see it as a difference. I'll probably, because I have privilege, I can make an evaluation judgment on it, which then always puts me in being in the position of evaluator, you know, and devaluing, de-evaluator. Um, but I think it takes a toll on us as, as human beings, as white people, to just always be kind of separating the wheat from the chafe and um, diminishing the brilliance and glory of people of color. It, I feel like it actually takes a lot of work and it takes a lot out of us to keep that 
system going, even as most of us aren't aware that we're keeping the system. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a unrecognized energy drain from our, from yeah. ourselves somehow. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. It, it, um, white privilege has been said a number of times in, in this conversation and all over the place. Um, I wonder if, would you, could you share how you define that? I mean, you know, kind of in its most primitive thing, it's that I get advantages based on my skin tone. And that not only do I get advantages based on my skin tone and being white, that I have enough power to then institutionalize and make rules and practices based on what my race-based preferences and privileges are. So I can have bias against other groups, and yet my privilege gives me the privilege and the power to implement not only how I behave interpersonally, I also then get authority to legislate it legally. <laughs> you get to legislate it by policy, and you get to legislate it by, how, by culture about how you see who's good, right, and beautiful. And I get that whether I want it or not. It actually takes a lot to actively shift it. Right. So it's not a choice. It's not, I think some, some white people take it like, no, I haven't consciously done wrong or taken advantage of something. No, it just, by your being, you, yeah. you have a privilege. It's not that, it's not about trickery or deceit. Yeah, right. It, it, it just is, you know, and, and for me, this work actually has been liberating to me in that, without actively thinking about what I can do with my privilege to advance racial justice and liberation, then I'm left with some shame and guilt about being white, you know, and I shrink away from taking responsibilities for that. And that's not helpful. So, I mean, in a paradoxical way, my moving toward understanding all the ways that I get it actually allows me to feel a lot better about being white. <laughs> Because I can make choices to um, be an ally in service of trying to interrupt this really bad thing called racism. Okay. Hmm. So do you have any you know, concrete steps, ideas, tactics to share uh, for how, you know, what, what white people can do about racism? Contact, contact, contact. And I mean that primarily talk to other white people. Oh. I think so many of us white people, as we get woke, all of a sudden we expect people of color to be our teacher. That's another version of white privilege. <laughs> it's a demand, right? Just because, I mean, and that person of color has been dealing with this their whole life and will be. And just because today I decided that I was curious about this topic or what you said, tell me about it. I mean, that's another manifestation of, of white privilege. So I would say do a lot of your own reading. Make contact with other white people who are also interested in this conversation so you can have a different kind of conversation with white people that then people of color will feel as a result of that. Um, certainly 
have contact with people of color because you don't want to just be making decisions and relationships in the vacuum and put yourself in places where you're going to have contact with people of color. You know, very few white people will go into performance spaces that are in Roxbury or Dorchester that are primarily black, or they won't go to a, a Latin performance at a, at a community center down in Chelsea. You know, we're, we just, we, 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 for whatever our story is, usually we end up telling ourselves, oh, well, they wouldn't want us here. And I'm going to say white people get over yourself because <laughs> they don't even notice us. <laughs> like we're just not that, we're, we're not the show. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, you know, contact with other white people, contact by us, knowing what are the relevant books, what are the relevant movies, what are the relevant performances, seek them out, read, read authors of color, you know, look at, you know, experience um, culture that isn't typical for you. Um, and you're going to make mistakes. You know, right now I'm, I'm on the board of this Cambodian literary organization and my experience, my, my most contact, if I was to think of people of color is mostly black people and then secondarily brown. And I really did not have very many con much contact with Asians, let alone Cambodians. And I have had a long-term client that is in Lowell and there's a very large Cambodian organization I mean, population in Lowell. And so I said, you know what, if I'm going to be in Lowell and this is a community, um, I want to be part of this organization. And so for the last two, two and a half years, and this is going to really sound silly. And I know that this is sometimes the things that trip up us white people. I get self-conscious about saying the names, you know, 13, 15 letter names that are so unfamiliar to me that I can feel myself get all anxious about mispronouncing, you know, and then, it, then again, if somebody told me it, right, and then I mispronounce it again, or, you know, and again, it's very basic, and yet the way in which that culture is very foreign to me, or I think about, you know, if I'm in spaces where people are speaking Spanish or Portuguese or French Creole. They're languages that I've had some contact with, so I can get some gist of the conversation. When people are speaking Khmer, I got nothing. And so how do I keep myself present and engaged in the conversation where I don't then expect the people to switch to English in order to make space for me, right? And so I, that, that's, I, I'm just giving that as a particular area of contact that, you know, I've really pushed myself to be outside of community, um, you know, and the trauma of the genocide and understanding how that lives in the community today and how then does that affect what gets written and it's a literary organization and, you know, people write about that. I mean, so I, I just feel like I've learned so much as I've continued to push myself to be in community with people who are, I really have to make an effort mm -hmm. and be uncomfortable to make community with. Yep. And that's not about them. I mean, they've been tremendously welcoming and you know, that's about me and yeah. my own journey. And when you 
do mispronounce a name or have to be told something for the you know fifth time of how to say it, are are they uh, are they offended? Are they upset with you? Or what's what happens? My experience is that my whole thirty years of being in contact with communities of color have been so kind and compassionate to me in my journey, and that their sense of my commitment to being in and being there in their community, in their space repeatedly over time. I, I can't believe the generosity (laughs) that has been given to me over that time. Um, And it's really because they sense that I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. I've had the privilege to do a lot of international travel and, um, and I, I find it too, like people can, can laugh it off and forgive, you know, when when my tongue isn't getting things right, but they can tell that yeah. your heart is. Yeah, true that. Cool. True that. Cool. True that. It's my cool. own. It's my own thing. I mean, so my rescue remedy, I, and I have it, and I use it a lot. Is who died? Hmm. I mean, sadly, in this moment in time, there are sadly consequences of dying, and usually, my mispro- always my pronounce, mispronunciation of a name does not result. Right. In somebody dying. So it is kind of a invitation to myself to be like, Chris, get over yourself. Yeah. Like, so what? Like, do it, try it again the next time. Cool. Cool. So uh, this is great. We've been talking with Chris Miller. Your, your company is Diversity Matters. And I know you don't have a website. You're not on social media. So, you know, if, if someone wants to discover you, is it are you just walking the earth waiting to see where you're blown or, or how, how can someone reach you? There is some part of that. I'd be happy to give you my email address and my telephone. And so if anybody wanted to, I mean, it is how I make my living. And so people want to have me talk, do presentations, do executive coaching, come work in organizations. Um, I always work with a, a colleague of color. Um, doing mixed race work so uh be happy to give you and i don't know if you want me to give you to you now or or is it a link at the bottom of the you want me to give you it'll be both yeah i want you to say it okay. right now for people listening but also people can visit realmenfield.org and in the show notes we'll have everything in writing as well okay cool so it's chris miller uh 781-771-6301 and my email is chris c-h-r-i-s avery A-V-E-R-Y, Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, at Verizon.net. Cool. Um, This conversation has been fascinating to me. Um, What you do, I find almost unbelievable. Uh, Really, when I first met, I'm like, what? Really? uh, Yeah. And again, I thought... Yeah, from from white privilege and distorted white privilege. I thought, no, shouldn't it be shouldn't it be people of color teaching this? Shouldn't it be right? What? How? How dare we tell people anything? Because we've been telling people things, and that's how we got in this problem, isn't it? And yeah, so um, I love that you are 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 doing this work. That you're so open hearted and and genuine, and your compassion uh, just comes through so so clearly. So, Great. you know, I uh, commend you and thank you for being brave enough to be on your first podcast. Yeah. That, that is greatly appreciated as well. Yeah, thank, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Cool. And, you know, and- my thing is nobody knows whiteness like white people. So. <laughs>
So there's a lot of room for us to talk to each other about what that is. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in, listening to this episode. Um, Please engage in conversations in your network, in your circle of friends, uh, with your coworkers, and be willing to expand that network as well. Um, Because it is. It's, 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 as Chris said, connection. Connection, connection, connection. Enhance our humanity. And we can all make a, a, a better world. We really can. All right. Be well, everybody. Until next time. Thanks a lot, Andy. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Join the private Real Men Feel Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash realmenfeel. Learn more about author, coach, and healer Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us greatly if you gave a review wherever you are listening right now. It takes less than a minute and helps other people discover Real Men Feel.